Welcome to the Disability Belongs podcast. Just a quick disclaimer as we get started that the opinions expressed in the Disability Belongs podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of CFILC, its member organizations, or Yo Disabled and Proud. And with that out of the way, let's get on to the episode. Our guest today has worked at Disability Rights California for 14 years and is a senior advocate. She specifically works in the Pathways to Work practice group. She is a self-proclaimed chicken watcher and plant hoarder, and I'm so excited to be here today with Rebecca Hoyt. Welcome, Rebecca. Hi, Cammie. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm so glad you're here. Can you tell us a little bit about what Disability Rights California is and what your role at DRC is? Absolutely. Um, Disability Rights California is part of California's protection and advocacy system. So each state has an organization like ours to preserve and advance the rights of people with disabilities. Um, And these organizations were really born out of anti-institutional work. Um, In 1975, there was an expose on a um, state developmental center called Willowbrook, where the people who live there were living in um, really deplorable conditions. And so out of the advocacy work that was done to close that facility, um, each state uh, developed a protection and advocacy system. So Disability Rights California is the system for Californians with disabilities. And we work to defend, advance, and strengthen the rights and opportunities of people with disabilities in all stages of life. And we have a variety of different uh, practice areas and units to meet people wherever they are um, with whatever agencies they're encountering on their journey. I work in the Pathways to Work practice group, um, which is part of our legal advocacy unit. Um, And our staff are devoted to removing barriers to employment for people with disabilities. And we do this through providing empowering self-advocacy services, um, direct representation, um, and a lot of systemic work. Thanks for that. What led you to work at DRC? Well, aside from my own personal connection with disability advocacy, I was going to school and working at a program in Los Angeles that provided theater arts programs to um, young people in juvenile camps and facilities. Um, And they also received some services, um, some funding to provide services to folks uh, in the community who had been charged with a gang-related offense. Um, And in doing that work, I was really taken aback by the prevalence of of disability. that was either underserved or underdiagnosed um, with the folks that I was working with. And um, I was in school, I was studying sociology and my academic advisor at the time, the more I talked to him about what I wanted to accomplish and the work that I wanted to do really encouraged me to pursue a job in the, the legal field. So when I graduated from school, I went to work at Public Council Law Center in Los Angeles and and worked as an education advocate, which felt like a very natural transition for me. I was doing a lot of special education and school discipline work, um, and it felt like an opportunity to really meet some of the folks that I was meeting in locked facilities much earlier in their journey um, and to 
really kind of examine the the link between the juvenile justice systems and our school systems, which can be really harmful to students with disabilities, especially low-income students and students of color. Um, so I, I felt like that was a, a natural path that um, would allow me to, to affect the kind of change I wanted. So um, as I was working there, I, I was really attracted to the work of DRC because it was an organization that really focused on disability work um, and had a, a really you know, rich history in anti-institutional and systemic work. Now as an employment advocate, I'm, I'm particularly passionate about employment because it's really kind of this nexus of where different systems have to work together and work well um, in order to serve people. So when we come to work, we need access to education, to healthcare, childcare, supportive services, assistive technology, transportation, um, freedom from discrimination, and, and so on. Um, so this feels like a space where I can be most impactful. And so I'm, I'm really excited to be doing this type of work. That's so interesting how you talk about how really everything has to connect and go right in order for someone to be in a successful place of employment. Yeah, I, I think we can do a lot of reflection on how well um, we are, are meeting the needs of um, people with disabilities when we look at employment rates. And unfortunately, when you look at current rates and historic rates um, throughout the state and the nation, we, we have a lot of work. Yeah. You've talked a little bit about how you've kind of helped other people in their journeys and employment. How has your own disability impacted your experiences in the workforce or in education before that? Well, there's a lot to say here. <laughs> so I, I am a person with dyslexia. Um, so there are many, you know, medical definitions of dyslexia. I would describe it as, you know, I have a picture brain. So as I take in written information, it's following a different path um, through my, uh, you know, neuro journey um, in order to, to be absorbed. And then also, um, you know, following a different path in order for me to translate from what I'm seeing in my head, which are usually images to words, whether they're spoken or written. Um, in terms of my education experience, um, it is really apparent to me that uh, academia and K through 12 systems were, were really not built with people like me in mind. Um, I think our school systems tend to measure and reward a very specific type of intelligence and compliance. Um, so when I, I look back at my K through 12 education, um, there was a lot of, you know, really real struggles. Um, and in some ways it was like I was a European outlet and there's like an American plug, um, the outlet works fine, um, but you need a converter in order to, to really um, have that be a meaningful connection. That's a um, really interesting way of describing that. I really like that. <laughs> Thank you. I think this is one of the gifts of dyslexia is I speak a lot in metaphors because that's kind of my uh, experience of the world and how I can best express myself <laughs> is um, making something visual. Um, but there, you know, if you don't fit into those three holes, it can be a really um, challenging experience. So I had a lot of progress reports um, going through school that would say things like 
Rebecca's very bright, but she's not really reaching her full potential. Um, I think I was frequently labeled as, um, you know, being lazy or careless or not applying myself, um, which was hurtful and, and ironic because <laughs> I was um, probably spending much more time and a lot of painstaking effort to complete assignments than some of my peers. Um, so school did teach me really an incredible work ethic. Um, in part, that was because I wanted to do well. But the other part was I, I needed to protect myself from some of the diminishing feedback I would receive from teachers. You know, I, I finished school. Um, There's a really uh, impactful experience I had in one of my transition IEP meetings um, where I was told to kind of manage my expectations of what life after high school might look like. And um, one of my teachers suggested that um, I look at occupations where I could use my hands, um, meaning that I was built for manual labor. Um, that doesn't really fit my personality type or my interests. Um, I do love building things, but in a very different way. <laughs> um, and I think it was really at that moment that I decided within myself, like, I am going to college and I am going to graduate. And so um, I don't think it was intended to motivate me, but it really did. If you could go, go back to that moment in that meeting and say something else to yourself, would you? Is there something like different that you would have told yourself? I don't think so. I, I think that, um, you know, I am really strong-willed and I think that's part of what uh, makes me really good at the work that I do. And so um, sometimes when um, I feel doubted or, or underestimated, it can really be a, a place of... Um, an empowering experience if I let it to say like, I, I don't need to let someone else decide what I'm capable of. Like I, I am the, I can choose to listen to other people's voices or I can trust the voice that's in my own head. That's powerful. That's interesting how, even though that comment was not like, definitely was not an appropriate comment to make in that moment. <laughs> it's still like, it's shaped so much of your life and it seems like it's shaped who you are even now. Absolutely. And I, I think that um, I would encourage others to, to use those experiences, which are meant to diminish us as ways to you know find a place to, to allow them instead to empower us to say that doesn't have to be my story. I can write my own story. I love that. I think you were starting to talk about college when I interrupted you with another question. <laughs> Do you want to continue on from there? Is there anything else? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I mean, another really impactful experience I had in my education journey was um, when I first went to college, I went to a private school um, and I, I needed accommodations in college. And it is a... Um, I think a really rough transition for a lot of special education students to go from the special education process to now, um, you know, having your, your rights and protections under the ADA. And so I, I started advocating for myself for the accommodations I needed for school. Um, and the school was under the impression that because they were a private university, they weren't obligated to provide any accommodations um, and really made me feel like what I was asking for was special treatment, you know, quote unquote. 
um, rather than, uh, you know, an equity ask. Um, so I, I was able to, you know, start kind of researching, like I didn't know a lot about 504 um, and uh, the reasonable accommodations. And so that was the first time I, in trying to look at what my legal rights were, I learned about people like Judy Human and I learned about the Capitol Crawl and I felt this greater connection to all of these people who had came before me and like paved this way um, for me to be able to get an education. And so that was really um, impactful in, in shaping. I think that really drove me to disability advocacy. Um, and even though I did get granted the accommodations from that particular college, um, I ended up transferring because even though I thought I had what I needed to be successful there, I didn't feel like I should have had to work so hard to be successful. Um, and, and I think that it was not a place that was ready to embrace a student like me. And rather than try to redesign that system, I, I um, moved to a school where I felt uh, a greater sense of belonging and acceptance. I know that that's definitely something I have experienced, unfortunately, in my own schools, having to push for changes that I shouldn't be the one that has to work for it. Like I should have access to my education and I deserve access to my education and I'm guaranteed access to my education, but that doesn't always happen. But it, like, if there was something that you could change about, like, let me, let me figure out how to phrase this best. <laughs> like, what would have been helpful if they did something differently? Not that that was your, not that that should ever have to be your job to make them do things right. But if they had accommodated you in a certain way or taught you about disability culture in a certain way or something like that? Is there something that would have been helpful for you? I, I don't know if it's as um, like surface as that. I, I think this is actually a great example of why we need more people with disabilities working in every sector. Mm -hmm. um, if we had more um, administrators and curriculum designers with disabilities, I think we would have a more inclusive education system. Um, and I think we, uh, you know, on a larger level, need to sort of look at accommodations um, at some point as fixes to systems that were not designed uh, for people with disabilities um, and move past that and start looking at how do we make all systems, um, you know, move in the direction of universal um, an inclusive design so that they're built foundation up in a way that is inclusive and welcoming. Yeah, because there's only so many band-aids that we can put on a system that wasn't built for disabled people originally. Absolutely. And, and to give just another example, um, you know, when I finished college, I was like, all right, I'm going to go to law school. And um, I started looking into uh, studying for the LSAT. Um, which is the entrance exam for, for law schools. And at that time, um, your test was graded and scored differently if you used accommodations during the, the exam. And so I, I spent a few years really trying to study uh, so that I could get a competitive score without the accommodations that I needed because I felt like the only alternative was to 
basically flag and label myself as a student with a disability before I had even entered law school. Um, so it felt like two very bad options. And so um, that really didn't seem like a, a path that was right for me at that time. Oh, that makes sense. What advice do you have for disabled people fighting for their own accommodations? So my advice is not to accept the first no as the final no. Um, a lot of people give up um, when they're first denied accommodations, whether it's by an employer or a school or um, a public setting. And I think, unfortunately, these systems are built for that, um, you know, but um, there, there's generally an, an opportunity to appeal. And when we advocate for ourselves in those processes, we're we're not only benefiting and, and obtaining our own accommodations, but we're really widening the path for the next person. The more that we can create those spaces for people to connect, um, the less these systems can consolidate people and their legal issues. Um, so there's like a broader community power that we need to, to tap into. That's great. Thank you. How, so I know dyslexia, when it's talked about, is often talked about something that like children have as if it disappears at some point in your life, which you know <laughs> is not true. How has dyslexia impacted your life, particularly in adulthood, as you got out of the education system and started to come into work and learning how your brain works and how you do things in a way that works for you? I think the workplace is, is has been different for me than in education because my success is measured more by what I'm accomplishing rather than um, the process by which I'm accomplishing it. Um, so there, there are a lot of things that I struggle with, but I find the more open I am about um, what I'm experiencing, the, the greater the support I receive. Um, and so I've found it easier to, to access accommodations and assistive technology at work. But in my job, I, I do communicate and think and process information differently um, than other people. And I think that that is an asset to my employer. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of employers are looking to add someone to their team who thinks differently, who can bring new ideas, um, who has, you know, some innovation and vision. And I, I think people with disabilities are a really untapped um, labor market. Um, so you know, the, the things that I can bring to the table are not something that um, necessarily someone can be trained to do. So I, I think it makes sense to really look at um, neurodiversity uh, more as a, an asset in the employment setting. Um, but in terms of, you know, dyslexia in adulthood, I, I think that stigma is very real, um, including in the communities of adults with dyslexia. <laughs> um, a lot of uh, folks, even in my own circle of support, um, are hesitant to use the word disability because it's so stigmatized or to say I have a learning disability as an adult. Um, and in many ways, I understand that because I learn new things every day. I learn new things all the time, um, but I am learning differently. Um, I, I would love to see us kind of normalize the, the way we talk about um, learning disabilities and dyslexias um, with adults. Um, I have really real adult problems. It's hard for me to 
um, send an email. I don't have the same accommodations and supports I have at work. Text message, help my kid with homework. Um, you know, I um, have a hard time in, in grocery stores and office settings because of the fluorescent lighting. Um, and, you know, the biggest part is after a long day of um, trying to translate my thoughts into neurotypical <laughs> Uh, conversations and writing, I'm exhausted. Um, so, you know, I, I would really love to see us um, embrace disability. Um, uh, it's not a bad word. And I, I think that my experience is like really owning that dyslexia is a part of my identity and I am a person with a disability, like creates this beautiful connection to a larger community for me. Um, even to folks that don't have the same disabilities. Um, and so I think there's a lot of work that, that we internally can do to um, talk more openly and more honestly about um, dyslexia and learning disabilities in adulthood. Thanks, that's so interesting to hear. Do you identify with the term neurodivergent at all or like neurodiverse? I think you mentioned it a little bit. I absolutely do. Um, I have very similar needs sometimes or experiences as a lot of my, you know, peers with different neurodiversities. Um, you know, I really appreciate plain language. Um, I have times where like I can't process like externally what I'm thinking internally and there's like a little bit of a block there I talk with my hands like <laughs> I need mental breaks um, I experience a lot of you know or, or I should say I relate a lot to um, also what what people refer to as masking um, so you know trying to to pass as um, in some spaces uh, and, and to sort of normalize myself um, is is very taxing. Um, and so at the end of that, like I'm, I'm kind of uh, mentally spent. <laughs> How do you care for yourself as a neurodivergent person in a world that was systemically set up for neurotypical people? And that can be like, I think as a society, we talk about self-care and people are like bubble baths and lotion. And I'm like, that's not quite what I mean. I mean, if that is your <laughs> preferred form of self-care that is wonderful but I think it just extends so much beyond that so what has been your experience with self-care or caring for yourself giving yourself rest as a disabled person or a neurodivergent person um I I think that there are times when I just need alone time <laughs> like I, I can't communicate anymore um or I, I can't go through the taxing process of trying to communicate like the rest of the world. Um, so I think taking those, those mental social breaks is really helpful. Um, and then I, I'm learning as I grow up <laughs> that, um, you know, the more that I can share with people what is happening, um, you know, in the moment uh, is really to my benefit. So if I can tell you like, I'm struggling to find the word or like, I'm, you know, I have this image in my head and it looks like this, um, you know, but I, I'm having a hard time articulating that. Um, I, I think people tend to understand. And um, even if I'm not 
expressing like, oh, this is a part of my disability, but just, I'm telling you, like, I'm trying to communicate something, but I'm having a hard time. Um, I think that works well. I think this is really hard, um, particularly these last few years of the, the pandemic as I've been working from home. And it seems like there is um, so many spaces where um, people with disabilities uh, are fighting and really need a, a megaphone. Um, one sort of practical uh, practice is, is really working to empower and lift up the people around me. Um, so that we are sharing the work and the emotional labor that goes into the advocacy. Um, there's still some places where I really struggle to like separate what are my, you know, the intersections of like the personal issues and the way um, that the systemic issues are impacting my life. Um, so I think there's, um, you know, times when I'm, I'm really not doing a good job of honoring other parts of myself um, and separating who I am from what I do, uh, which is sort of a, a very built-in capitalistic ableist perspective that, that I'm working to, to separate from. So the pandemic has really brought to me the, the need to kind of start this self-care journey. <laughs> um, you know, we, we many of us started this uh, at the beginning of March, like we were going to approach a sprint. This turned out to be a marathon. Um, and so I'm trying to give myself a little bit of, of space. Um, so small things like stepping away from, from the work um, and going outside and sitting uh, with my chickens and what I'm calling my self-care chair um, <laughs> has been really helpful to me. And I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing, um, you know, what other um, self-care things that, that evolve from that. Okay. I got to know, is the self-care chair, like, is it like a lawn chair, like a hammock? What kind of chair is it? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a patio chair with a very comfy cushion, but most importantly, it is far away uh, enough from my home office where I can't hear the phone ring. I can't hear that little bing when an email comes in, that if I'm anywhere else will kind of call me back to my desk. <laughs> <laughs> we got to watch out self-care chair is going to be trending after this episode is published. That would be amazing. <laughs> I love that. Um, so you've talked a little bit about like disability community and learning about disability culture and history that came before you. How have you fostered a sense of disability pride or community in your own life, particularly when you're in a role that you're not only advocating for yourself as a disabled person, but you're also advocating for other disabled people around you? Yeah, so I, I want to share a little bit about um, when I was diagnosed with dyslexia. Um, so I was in second grade, and actually my, my mother was tested at the same time. Um, and so she was diagnosed at the, the same time that I was in, in her adulthood. And I can remember, um, you know, being in this office with her and, um, you know, having this exam that I really didn't understand at the time explained. Um, and my mom burst into tears. Um, and so for whole, her whole life up to that point, um, she didn't have a, a place to say, this is what is happening in my brain, or, you know, this is why I'm struggling with this, or this is why my experience of this is different. And so she spent a lot of years feeling like um, 
she didn't belong or that she was struggling in a way that her peers were not. Um, and so I think there was like this liberation that happened. And so, um, you know, I think she wanted to protect me a little bit from having some of the same experiences. So disability was like something we talked very openly about at home. It was kind of private at school and in other spaces. Um, so when I had my own child, <laughs> Um, who is also, uh, you know, someone with a disability, he has a different disability than I do. So we have these great conversations about like, what's going on in your brain or like, what is, what's happening right now for you? Um, you know, I really wanted him to have a, a different experience and to have that sense of pride and community that um, I didn't have as much access to um, growing up. And so I really felt like that is the biggest um, influence on my identity as the person with a disability is that if I want him to grow up with pride in his identity, the most effective way I can foster that is to model it within myself. Um, and so we have really open conversations um, about disability. He's very open with his classmates. Um, we had a great experience where Another classmate disclosed to him that he also had a disability. And my son was like, it's nothing to be embarrassed about. Like everybody's brain and body is different. Um, so I, I really see a lot of um, what I had craved within myself in him. And so there becomes kind of this reciprocal relationship of, of uh, you know, us passing that pride back and forth. And I think I'm, I'm also very fortunate to be immersed in an environment with people um, with disabilities all around me, whether they're colleagues or coworkers or um, community partners. And so I have all these amazing examples of people who are unapologetically themselves um, in every space at every time. And so I'm, I'm striving to be that in order to, to live up to the example they've set for me. So interesting. It's I've talked with a few different disabled people who have disabled parents as well, either with the same condition or different. And it's just really interesting to hear how disability pride is passed or is not passed from generation to generation. And so I really enjoyed hearing you talk about that in your own family, in your own life. Yeah. And I, I am really like awestruck by, um, you know, the, the younger generation of um, advocates and activists. Um, I, I think there's just a really different uh, sense of being and sense of self than, than I had access to. And so I'm so excited and optimistic about like the movers, shakers and change makers, <laughs> you know, that are on their way. That kind of leads us into segues into our next question, which is kind of a different direction. So you have worked on the Build Back Better Coalition. Can you talk a little bit about the Build Back Better Coalition and what the goal of that coalition is? So our coalition um, is growing. We, we were born out of an employment summit that we hosted back in May of 2021. Um, and we have a great um, compilation of community partners who are, are working with us in the coalition. And my vision is that we create a statewide cross-disability movement around employment, um, that we really celebrate uh, the diversity of California's disability community, and that we seize this moment um, in the pandemic where we are not rebuilding 
the same harmful structures um, that existed before the pandemic, but really reimagining what is possible. And so we're working around six goals. Um, and our goals include to increase labor market participation for people with disabilities, to close the gap in service disparities for Black, Indigenous, and communities of color, um, to ensure that people with disabilities can participate in program design, policy decisions, and in California's recovery efforts. We also want to increase access to a living wage for all people with a disability, increase opportunities for work-based learning from an early age, and lastly, um, to increase access to employment supports for people who need them. Is there some way that our listeners can get involved with the Build Back Better Coalition or maybe a website or social media? Absolutely. We have a, a landing page that is on our Disability Rights California website, www.disabilityrightsca.org. Um, and when you visit our page, there's a link where you can add your email address and join the coalition. Um, and then you'll receive updates about our events um, and opportunities to, uh, in public policy in California. Awesome. Thank you so much. Can you talk about why diversity and inclusion specifically of disabled people is important in the workplace? So I think whether um, employers recognize it or not, you already have staff um, and potentially leadership and clients who are people with disabilities. Um, so this is not a, a new idea. <laughs> um, this is good business. So I, I think inclusion of people with disabilities is, is really important because um, according to the CDC, about 25% of Americans are people with disabilities. So um, if, if you can hone in on, on the assets that your employees bring to the table, um, and translate that into um, every aspect of, of your company um, or your organization, then what you're producing is more accessible services. Um, you know, one thing that comes up pretty frequently in our community conversations process is transportation. Um, so if we had more people with disabilities working in transportation fields, I believe we'd have more accessible transportation systems. Um, I think we also are at a point in time where employers are really looking to learn and expand their diversity efforts. Um, and so I think we can't do that without looking at um, intersectional employees um, and people with disabilities. Thanks for sharing that. The name of the podcast is Disability Belongs. What does Disability Belongs mean to you? I think it's a beautiful name. Um, you know, people with disabilities are already your family members, your neighbors, students, teachers, coworkers, and, and people that uh, you see every day. So I think disability belongs as a statement that affirms that people with disabilities hold space and should be embraced in their beautiful and completely whole form um, in which we all already exist. Thank you so much, Rebecca. It has been so wonderful talking with you today. And for our podcast listeners, if you want to follow the podcast at disability underscore belongs underscore podcast on Instagram, and that will be in our show notes in the description for this episode. 
And we will also link to the Build Back Better Coalition page that Rebecca talked about. Rebecca, is there any final words you have to share or any social other social medias that you would like me to shout out? Um, I'd love to invite folks to attend our, our upcoming events this year. Um, we're doing an employment for all event in May, which is centered around uh, increasing hiring of people with disabilities in state and federal employment. And then in October, we're hoping to link the entire state in a National Disability Employment Awareness Month event. Great. Thank you so much, Rebecca. I hope you have a great day. Thank you. Thank you so much for choosing to listen to the Disability Belongs podcast. This podcast would not be possible without the support of the California Foundation for Independent Living Centers and the Yo! Disabled and Proud program. Thank you to my entire team at Yo! We can't wait for our next episode, and we hope you'll join us then.